Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to CoronaPod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to CoronaPod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me is a new voice to CoronaPod and perhaps to the Nature Podcast entirely, Emma Stoy. Emma, how are you? Hi, Noah. Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So, for those- Brief intermission here. I'm recording this after Emma and I finished our interview. I got the recordings and you will notice there's a little bit of background noise. Turns out that Emma lives really close to an airfield and because she's so close to it, she tunes them out and didn't really even notice that they were there. However, you might. And so I ask you to bear with us. Such are the realities of recording from home. Anyway, back to our chat. So for those who don't know you, can you tell us who you are and what you do at Nature? Uh, Certainly. So I'm a news editor at Nature, which means that I'm usually sort of squirrelling away in the background, commissioning and editing some of the news stories that you might see on the magazine or on the website. So yeah, I'm not often on the podcast. I'm I'm coming out of my editing cupboard for that. (laughs) Absolutely. And one of the reasons we're speaking to you as an editor rather than a reporter this week is because what we're going to talk about is Delta. Now, there's a continuous stream of stories about Delta. And so I'm talking to you because you've edited a few of them. And so maybe we can get a little bit of a broader picture. When we say Delta, we're talking about the variant Delta. Why is it that this is such an important story for us to be talking about? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It seems like there have just been tons of stories about the Delta variant this last couple of weeks. And I think part of that is because in many parts of the world now, the Delta variant has become dominant. This is something that worries people. It makes people and it makes researchers curious. So there's a lot of people who want to study the Delta variant. They want to know things like, why is it that it can spread so fast? Is it going to cause a problem for um, vaccination rollouts? So there's just been a flurry of research activity that I think started probably when the Delta variant first started to emerge as a variant of concern. And a lot of those studies are kind of coming out now, which is why we're doing tons of reporting on them. This shift towards Delta becoming the dominant variant that we're seeing in transmission in various countries around the world really reminds me of a shift we saw with the Alpha variant quite some time ago. So there was the Alpha variant that was first detected actually in Kent, here in the part of the UK where I'm currently sitting. And then that quickly became the dominant variant across the world 
world and Delta is now following in its footsteps. Part of the reason that this is even more vital to study in this case is that now in the context of the Delta variant spreading, we have got a degree of vaccination across the world. So on that note, I guess I want to start with vaccination. Like what are the studies saying about Delta and vaccines? Yeah, you're right. So one of the big questions people are asking is in light of vaccination programs here in the UK, for example, quite a big proportion of adults are now vaccinated against COVID, but Delta is dominant. So researchers, public health officials really want to know how well does vaccinating people work against Delta as compared to other variants. And it's kind of not looking good. A couple of studies um, in the US seem to confirm the idea that Delta is more likely than other variants like Alpha or Beta to spread among the vaccinated population. Yeah, and I feel like there's been a kind of a sense that this might be the case for a while. And these studies have kind of started to try to add data behind that. And they've done it using PCR testing. Can you explain the methodology they're using in these studies? Yeah, as you say, they use the PCR tests, which are just the tests that you go for to confirm whether or not you have COVID. Um, So when you go to get a PCR test, they take a swab and they swab your throat, your nose, then they send off that test. Part of what they do then is they convert the virus's genetic material into DNA and the PCR amplifies or replicates that DNA to the point where it can be detected. And then they can tell whether you've got coronavirus. However, they can also tell how much coronavirus you had in your sample by the number of those replications they need to do in order to get it to a point where it can be detected. So when you look at a PCR result like this, you come up with a measure called the cycle threshold. And that's the number of these cycles that you need to get the DNA to the point where it's detectable. And so if you have a low score for the cycle threshold, that means you had a high concentration of virus in in your sample because you you don't need to do as many of these cycles to get it detectable. And there was a study uh, looking at people in Wisconsin, in the US. They took these PCR results um, from people who tested positive for coronavirus, 90% of whom had the Delta variant. And some of these people had been vaccinated. And they found they actually had these low CT values comparable to people who'd caught Delta COVID who had not been vaccinated at all, low enough to be a level where they think it could spread to other people. So that's not really a very good sign because it means that even if you've been vaccinated, if you happen to be one of those people who catch what's called a breakthrough infection when you've been vaccinated, you can still pass it on to other people, even if the vaccination means you'll be less likely to become hospitalised or die. So I think the take-home message from studies like that is that being vaccinated is great, being vaccinated does offer you some protection, but it doesn't mean that you can't catch COVID and it doesn't mean that you can't spread it to other people if you do. So some health authorities on the basis of some of these studies have adjusted their advice to say, we still think you should mask up if you're in like a poorly ventilated, crowded area, for example, you should still consider things like social distancing, but we still don't know a lot about it this data is coming in almost in real time. Scientists are having to analyse it on the hoof and, and make decisions on that basis. Indeed. And, you know, there was a study that came out of Houston in Texas. Again, it's a similar study. It's a CT analysis, the kind of analysis we were talking about before. But one of the other outcomes from that analysis suggested that Delta accounted for three times more breakthrough cases. So cases where people contract COVID despite being vaccinated than all the other variants combined. So again, this is a situation which shows why Delta 
water is particularly important to study here and particularly important to understand because it really does seem to be a different ballgame compared to the other variants. Yeah, absolutely. That same study also found that people with Delta seemed to stay in hospital when they were hospitalised. They were there longer than people who had other variants. So there's a sense that perhaps Delta is kind of different in other ways to other variants. It's got a slightly different biology. There's another study that came out of Singapore, which said that although vaccinated people who have Delta are still infectious, they might be infectious for a shorter time than with other variants. So there's a lot of information. There's kind of a fire hose of information coming out and it can be difficult to make sense of. So let's try to make sense of some of it. I'm a sort of a lapsed scientist turned science journalist slash, you know, science podcast maker. But I do still find some comfort and understanding in in getting a sense of some of the mechanisms behind why this might be happening. And there are studies that are starting to point to that as well. Why do we think Delta might be acting so differently to other variants of the virus? Yeah, this is another huge area of interest. This is the million dollar question, because if we know why it spreads or how it can spread so easily, that might provide us with kind of ways or tools to try and stop it, try and cut down the spread. So there's a lot of scientists who are really drilling down into the biology to look at how Delta is different. And there's some that are getting a little bit closer to answering that question there's this protein called the spike protein and this is something the coronavirus uses while it's kind of locking onto identifying infecting host cells and a lot of the different variants have genetic mutations which affect the structure of this spike protein now with the spike protein there's a particular region we're getting quite technical now called the furin cleavage site The host actually makes cuts in the spike protein, including at this site with an enzyme called furin. That's why it's called the furin cleavage site. And this is something that needs to happen before a a coronavirus particle can invade a cell. Delta has a mutation, which has the catchy name P681R, which affects one single amino acid within that furin cleavage site, which is within this spike protein. And this seems to make a big difference. Right, yeah. So the spike protein is the kind of poster child protein that everyone will have heard of over and over and over again. But probably not that many people will have a really good understanding of what it actually does. But as you said, the spike protein is how the virus gets into the cell. But to get into that cell, that protein needs to be cut twice. And what we think is happening here is in this particular region of that spike protein called the furin cleavage site, a mutation is meaning that one of those cuts can happen more easily, which cuts the sort of amount of work that the host needs to do, the human body needs to do, and means that the virus can get into other cells more quickly. Yeah, however, it's not entirely that simple because there are other coronavirus variants which have this same mutation that haven't taken off in quite the same way as Delta. There was one that has been identified in Uganda but it doesn't spread as fast as Delta. So they think there are probably other mutations, maybe to the spike protein, maybe to completely other proteins, which just haven't been studied as well, that Delta has, which gives it an edge over other variants. Yeah, and and that P681R catchy mutation, one of the reasons that researchers are confident that it is having a big impact is because they have done some in vitro experiments in which they knock out that mutation or put that mutation back in again. And that does change how infectious the variant appears to be. Can you tell us a little bit about how that experiment worked? Yeah, sure. So if you culture cells from the human airway, which are the ones that you know, the virus might be infecting if you were to breathe it in. If you culture them with equal numbers of delta and alpha particles, the delta ones will kind of rapidly outcompete 
the alpha ones. But if you then alter those delta particles, you take out that mutation, it doesn't do that. It doesn't seem to have an advantage. So that suggests that this is an important mutation for giving it an advantage over the alpha variant. You know, you hear that and you think, well, that's that's it done and dusted, right? That's a mutation that does it. You take it away and it doesn't work anymore. But then again, you look at other studies. There was a study in Wuhan, for example, that added this mutation into the original strain of coronavirus that was first started circulating in Wuhan. And that didn't cause it to act like Delta. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's undoubtedly an important mutation. But, you know, of the researchers, if you ask them about it, they'll say, yes, we think it's important, um, but it's probably not going to be the last um, thing that that's there to be found out about Delta. Absolutely. And, you know, there are other studies that have come out as well that have given other hints about why Delta could be so transmissible. For example, there was recently a preprint that suggested that the amount of time before someone shows symptoms when they contract the Delta variant is higher than with other variants, even though there is still a relatively high viral load. So that suggests that there's a longer asymptomatic phase where people could unknowingly be transmitting the coronavirus with Delta than with other variants. And that is a kind of a public health reason why it might be more transmissible rather than just the transmissibility of the virus itself. It's an entirely different mechanism through which transmissibility could increase, but it's still something that seems to be associated with Delta. So it really just highlights how many different sort of threads there are to pull here. Are there more studies coming that are going to give us more information? Yep, I think that's a fair assumption. There will be many, many more studies about Delta in the coming weeks, months, most likely years. There'll be a lot of studies looking at the epidemiology, what happens to populations in terms of infections. There'll be a lot looking at the molecular biology of Delta and of other variants. Got it. It makes me think every time we talk about this, you know, back in 2020, asking our reporter Amy Maxman, you know, Coronapod regular, what's the end game of the pandemic going to be? And she said, you know, vaccines will be the end game. And now here we are with a whole bunch of vaccines going, yeah. it's just the beginning. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the end game is going to be. I might as well, um, you know, try and read my tea leaves for that. I mean, we'll see what happens. It's um, it's a rapidly evolving um, situation and a rapidly evolving virus. Oh, you took the words right out of my mouth. The end of every Coronapod episode like this is, well, I, I think we're just gonna have to wait and see about this. Emma, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about all things Delta. I'm sure that we may be calling you back in the not too distant future to tell us about all things more about Delta as more of these studies come out. But for now, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Now, there's going to be a little bit of a break from Coronapod for the next week or two. I'm going to take a week off to try to think about something other than COVID for a little while. Who knows how successful I'll be in that. But we will be back with Coronapod in the coming weeks. And up until then, you can keep an eye out for the Nature Podcast. And if you want more coronavirus news, then there's tons and tons over at nature.com forward slash news. I'll put a link on where to find all the stories we've talked about today, as well as many, many, many others in the show notes. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.